Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with all kinds of creative people to find out how to write better music. Today's episode features neuroscientist Daniel Levitin, author of This Is Your Brain on Music and The World in Six Songs. In this episode, we talk a little about the evolutionary benefits of music and whether or not animals have music. The birds that have been studied won't sing if they know they're alone. We might sing if we're alone. I mean, that's, most people sing in the shower when they're alone. They don't want to sing in front of others. Birds are different. Birds will only sing if they know there's another one there. Dan has befriended some incredible songwriters over his career as a musician and author, including Joni Mitchell, Paul Simon, and Stephen Stills. In this episode, he shares some advice from all of them, including this nugget of wisdom from Sting. He told me that he tries to write himself into a corner create a puzzle for himself that way and then let his subconscious or default mode or whatever you want to call it solve the problem. He knows it's going to be rewarding for the listener because he's taking the listener somewhere new that they haven't been. Also in this episode, Dan performs a couple of his own songs, including one that he hadn't played for anyone else before I interviewed him. I got news today, you're no longer here. He talks about narrative momentum in songwriting, something we should all strive for. You can try a little experiment. You know, stop a song at any random point. And if you don't, if it doesn't make you feel on edge, then it doesn't have the narrative momentum, because you shouldn't be able to stop it just anywhere. Before we get into our talk, I just have one announcement. Next week, I'll be launching the Kickstarter campaign for my Composer Quest World Tour. My plan is to go around the U.S., and Australia and Taiwan, interviewing composers and visiting you listeners. If you're interested in having me come visit you, or if you want to get involved in the Kickstarter project, go to composerquest.com tour. Look for the Kickstarter announcement next Tuesday, May 10th, which also happens to be my birthday. Thanks, as always, to my loyal patrons who have already been donating to make this podcast happen. All right, let's get on to my talk with Dan Levitin. Dan, thanks so much for being here on Composer Quest. Thank you, Charlie. Yeah. It's exciting having you on the show. Um, I've been reading through The World in Six Songs this week and really enjoying that. And uh, yeah, I haven't actually gotten to check out your newest book, The Organized Mind, but I was kind of curious, like, what in in that book, um, just hearing your interviews about it. It's a lot about being organized mentally to be more creative by knowing when you're supposed when what the importance of daydreaming, I should say, versus being more focused. How does that relate to composing, do you think? Well, I think we've all had the experience of trying to create something, whether it's music or visual art or I mean, just anything that one would create. And we kind of get stuck, and we think about it, and we try to f- think our way through the problem. And it could even, I mean, it applies not just to creative acts uh, in arts, but problem solving. You've, you've got some personal problem or uh, a math problem that's homework or whatever it is. You, you reach a brick wall, and you don't know where to go from there. And so you give up, and you walk away, and then later the answer comes to you. And we used to say, oh, well, your subconscious is giving you the, the answer. And we now have a more nuanced understanding of what's going on. There's this mode of operation of the brain that scientists call the default mode. I call it, as you said, the daydreaming mode. And when you're daydreaming, your brain is not really in control of your thoughts. Or, well, you're not really in control of your thoughts. Your brain is taking you on this kind of circuitous path, and sometimes there are these random thoughts that impinge, and they are only loosely connected. And the solutions to a lot of problems, creative and otherwise, come from that kind of thinking, what we might call nonlinear thinking. Thinking your way through a problem usually takes you, okay, well, I'm at A, and I want to get to C, so I have to figure out where B is. But sometimes problems... <laughs> Problems can't be solved that way. You need to bring in information or ideas from a different domain or that they don't connect that way. Yeah. So 
when someone's working on a song, uh, I guess uh, maybe from your own personal experience too, do you find that you need to come back to it days later or whatever once you've made some more connections, figuring out where the song's going to go? Or can it happen for you in a short amount of time? You know, um, I think my experience is not that different from most other songwriters. Uh, And at this point, I would say the majority of my friends are songwriters. So we talk about this a lot. And I think for most songwriters, it works both ways. Sometimes it all comes in one uh, big inspiration. It feels, as Roseanne Cash told me, it feels like she just takes her catcher's mitt and holds it up in the air and the songs come into the mitt fully formed and there they are. But other times you have to really work at them because you got part of an idea and then you lost that thread. Whatever it was that was feeding that creativity disappears. And so you have to use your craft to get through the rest of it. And, you know, there are two songwriters I know who are at the extremes of this and almost everybody else is in the middle. And the extremes are Neil Young on the one side who insists that if the song doesn't come to him all at once, he drops it because he thinks that that first moment of inspiration is the precious, special one. And he's arranged his life so that he'll do whatever is necessary to follow that inspiration. He'll, he'll walk out of a meeting, out of a dinner, out of a party. He'll pull over to the side of the road. He just, he is the slave to that master of inspiration. And it all has to come to him at once. And if it doesn't, he says, it feels cobbled together. And he has a couple of songs that, you know, he's kind of had to finish later and they never felt properly formed to him. The other extreme is Joni Mitchell, who will slave over a lyric for months. She'll just be tinkering with a word or two, and it has to be just so, and she is tenacious about it. We were talking about the daydreaming mode, too, and how this plays into it, and Sting told me that when he writes, certainly in his solo career years, uh, which is what he's referring to, I don't know if he did this in The Police, but he told me that he tries to write himself into a corner. You know, the expression about a painter who's painting the floor and paints himself into a corner and then can't get out. He tries to put himself into some place where he doesn't know melodically or harmonically or rhythmically how he's going to get out of there. Um, and he says he see, if he can create a puzzle for himself that way and then let his subconscious or default mode or whatever you want to call it solve the problem, he knows it's going to be rewarding for the listener because he's taking the listener somewhere new that they haven't been. Hmm. Yeah. That's reminding me of a part of your book, The World in Six Songs, where you're talking about how songs in the past could have been a way for early humans to imagine scenarios that could happen in the future, like running away from a lion Uh, that kind of thing, and the song could be used as kind of like imaginative to deal with this problem. Yeah, in fact, I think think songs uh, are, along with all art, art is an opportunity for your brain to run free and imagine things that couldn't happen, like uh, the head of a person on the body of a cat, (laughs) or, um, you know, to imagine scenarios like, okay, if a lion were chasing me, what would I do? Or if I were on the Edmund Fitzgerald when it was shipwrecked, what would that have been like? You know, just to to take a Gordon Lightfoot song. I think all art and imagination at some point leads you to think about things that aren't true. And that can be a great exercise for adapting to the world. We see it now, we see it now in animals There's been so much research in my field in cognitive neuroscience on animal cognition. We used to think that animals were just dumber versions of us. And we no longer think that. Um, Some of them solve problems and use tools. And there are now many, many stories of crows and whales and dogs who 
appear to think about a problem and then an ape certainly and and then have a moment of insight where they'll figure out how to get some food or or do something that they otherwise weren't able to do and and that seems to be problem solving and and probably supported by daydreaming hmm. uh, the appendix at the end of the world in six songs is interesting too the why don't monkeys have music um yeah, could you kind of briefly sum up that idea? Yeah, so uh, researchers have been looking in earnest for the last 30 years or so to find evidence of music in animals because it would help us fill in an evolutionary story about how humans came to have music. And the results have been really frustrating and mixed. So one of the things that all human musics have, as you know, is the octave. Uh, the octave is a musical universal. And although different musical systems in different cultures might divide the octave differently into maybe only five notes or seven or 20, ours has 12 divisions and we tend to only use seven notes at a time. Where in rock, you know, and blues, maybe only five or six notes at a time, the pentatonic plus a blue note. Um, All cultures have the octave. And so one of the places that scientists started looking first was well, do other animals appreciate the octave? Can you train them to recognize an octave? And a number of studies show that our closest biological relatives, monkeys and apes, can't recognize octaves. Now, there was a single study that showed they could. After tens of thousands of trials and half-starving them and giving them rewards, they could. But that study hasn't been corroborated, and we, we don't really know. And then my colleague, Michael Petridis at McGill, had mapped the monkey brain and in the uh, rhesus macaque and found that they're, they're, they don't have a structure that we have, which serves to connect perception and planning. So it may be that they don't have music for, there may be several reasons, but one may be that they haven't developed this part of the prefrontal cortex that allows us to connect what we see and what we hear and taste and feel to the future and to planning and, and um, planning is part of making music. Hmm. So how does uh, bird music, bird song, I should say, I don't know if it, if you could define it as music to them, um, how does that work? Well, this is another contentious issue. So um, certainly if you look at what music sounds like to us, bird song sounds like music. Now, we don't know if it sounds like music to them or what that would mean. They don't seem to respond to our music. But I think the question isn't, does birdsong sound like music to us? The, the right ethological or biological question is, how do humans use music and how do birds use their songs? And humans use music uh, to express a variety of different states uh, and accomplish a number of things. We use it for social bonding, to feel closer to one another, Uh, We use it to express love or joy or physical fitness, you know, when we're dancing. We use it for comfort. Uh, We use it to soothe ourselves or or infants, mothers singing to infants. Uh, And we use it for religious rituals. And we use it for a pure aesthetic value. Now, of those, you could say that birds use it in ritual. They use it in mating displays and courtship rituals. But primarily, the evidence is that birds use music the way we use language. And they use it in a very limited number of contexts. They use it as a sexual display to say, here I am, I'm attractive, I'm ready to mate with you. Uh, They use it to guard their territory. And some species of birds use song to alert others that there's a danger approaching. Crows have a particular call when a dog is walking by as opposed to another animal chipmunks and squirrels do too, by the way, an alert signal. Um, the cotton-top tamarind, I think it is, of the uh, primates, has a particular call that distinguishes a snake, which is a predator of them, from an eagle, which is another predator. And the call alerts other members of the species to hide appropriately. So, you know, you hide in one place to get away from the snake and you hide in a different kind of place to get away from the eagle. So it seems as though birdsong is functioning more like a communicative device than the things we use music for. And 
another key or another piece of the puzzle is that the birds that have been studied won't sing if they know they're alone. We might sing if we're alone. I mean, most people sing in the shower when they're alone. They don't want to sing in front of others. Birds are different. Birds will only sing if they know there's another one there. Hmm. One thing you brought up in your book is vocal grooming. So like apes would groom each other and pick out bugs and stuff to show. And it serves as like a community building thing. But humans, when they had the groups get large enough, they can't all do that. So yeah, vocal grooming was a solution potentially, or could you kind of explain how that thing worked? Well, so um, the, the idea is, yes, as, as human groups get larger, we still need to create social bonds and alliances with each other in order to make society work. There's no primate community that we've studied that has more than 18 males. When you get more than that number of males in a group, the tensions and rivalries uh, break the group apart, and either number 19 gets killed or banished or something. And yet humans have been living for at least 10,000 years in cities of of 100,000 or more, certainly more than 18. How do we do that? Well, language helps to communicate, to soothe things over. Music does too. Vocal grooming is the idea that we sing together to ward off a common enemy or just to to, um, be doing something synchronously with one another. When we listen to music, our neurons fire in synchrony with the music. And my lab uh, published a paper a couple of years ago, and other labs have shown that when people listen to music together, their neurons fire in synchrony. So you're, you're not just you know, snapping your fingers synchronously or dancing or tapping your foot with other people. Your brain waves actually become synchronized. And that's a way to help you feel closer to other people and less likely to punch them in the nose or <laughs> banish them or kill them. Yeah. I think Trump should listen to more music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or at least his bodyguard. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. When when I read that part I was thinking about rock shows I've been to. Um and just like how amazing it is that if this many people were shoulder to shoulder and there wasn't music going on, uh it could be really a nasty situation, but <laughs> There's an interesting thing, too. We're talking about music's evolutionary history, and it impacts on a question you asked earlier. For most of history, I think music was participatory. For you know, 95% of our history with music as a species, it was participatory. Everybody joined in, and it was improvisatory. And it was really only with the, the Baroque and the Renaissance that we found that compositions would become fixed and people would learn them. But even then, you know, Bach had a number of pieces with variations, and uh, that was one of the arts of composing, was to be able to do variations in real time and performance the way jam bands do now. And I think what's happened with songwriting is that um, because popular music is, well, popular, uh, people hear the same piece hundreds or thousands of times. The pieces that you and I love... I'm sure we've heard over 500 or 1,000 times. And so there's an incentive, I wouldn't say pressure, but there's an incentive for a songwriter to try and get things just so. And the songwriters I know tend to tinker uh, quite a bit. Paul Simon has a new album coming out, as you may have read, and he's been working on it for five years. And he's been playing me different versions of it along the way. Oh, cool. It's, uh, he played me an almost finished version a couple of months ago in New York. And I don't know when the final record comes out, if, it's, if he's still going to have tinkered or not. But the idea of getting it just right is something that I've been doing more in my own writing recently. And I didn't used to do it. I used to be more like, well, you know, it comes and that's it. And, and I'm in a band and we have to play it and it's finished. But I've been going back for the last few years really uh, pushed by Joni, by Joni Mitchell, who pushed me to do so. I've been going back over them and and tinkering with them and changing things, even on songs that are 20 and 30 years old. And I had a song that I thought was completely finished that I wrote about three years ago. 
And I just went back a month ago and added a new part to it. I added a bridge where it didn't have one. So it's, and I, it's, I think that my experience from the people I talk to is typical of what other songwriters I know are doing. But you're, you're running the composer-songwriter show. What, what, what kinds of things are people telling you? Uh, well, there is a mix um, between people who want to have their song flow naturally and people who do a ton of editing. Um, I don't know. Yeah, my personal thought is that the songs that come to me naturally end up being better in a way. Um, But, I mean, I do classical composing too, and I can't come up with an orchestral piece on the spot. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But I don't think Mozart did either, in spite of the stories that when he was writing it down, it was just more like dictation. Um, I read an article about this recently. Um, You know, in the movie Amadeus and in other reports, he would just write it down as fast as he could write, which made it seem as though it was, uh, you know, preformed in his head and, and he was just, you know, capturing some laser beam from the heavens or something. But I think uh, from what scholars are saying now, he would have these rough outlines that implied the harmony and the melody and the rhythm. And when he was seen scribbling like that, he was really just orchestrating. And for him, it was perfectly obvious that if this is the structure of the piece, this is what the double basses are going to do, this is what the cellos are going to do, no inspiration needed. I mean, at that point, you know, if you're, a, if you're one of the best orchestrators in the world... You just take, you know, a couple of lines, a couple of piano lines, and, and, you know, you do it as fast as you can because you know what the stylistic conventions imply. Yeah. I guess uh, another question I was wondering about is, evolutionarily, where do you think avant-garde music fits in? Because, like, there's... It's clear what the songs that are everyone can tap their foot to and dance to makes sense but the more experimental things um what do you think about that i i think that it's the job of the artist to push the boundaries of what we're comfortable with and to make us see things differently than we might otherwise see them i think that having art is a cornerstone of a free society and that um, artists help us to recontextualize things, to recontextualize our reality, to make connections that we might not otherwise make. And they're not always successful at it. We're not always successful in understanding their intent or their meaning. But I think part of that is artists pushing the boundaries of the art itself. And so I think of avant-garde music, in particular 12-tone and serial music, as being you know, a group of, of artists asking the question, you know, what is art and, and what is music and what are the limits? And we saw it in the Dadaist movement in painting. Uh, and we saw a kind of backlash against that with hyper-realism and, and photorealism. So in terms of evolution, I think we've evolved as a question-asking species. And those questions have helped us to do things like harness the power of fire and discover the wheel and have agriculture and decode DNA and discover penicillin and all this stuff. And what you get out of that is music that many people find unlistenable, but it's part of the, part of the, the game. Yeah. What do you think about it? Uh, well, I, I, was exposed to a lot of experimental stuff in college and uh, I think was really good for my own composing. Uh, But I guess nowadays I'm not, I feel like I am not as interested in listening to really experimental stuff that, um, yeah. (laughs) The Beatles were listening to Stockhausen. Hmm. And there's evidence that Paul McCartney was listening to Grandal, a kind of avant-garde Danish composer. And um, I say that because there's a passage in a Grandal piece written in 1920 that goes, ba-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. 
<laughs> oh, really? Huh. So, you know, that so, kind of stuff can inspire. Yeah. So yesterday did come from somewhere, not just his dream. To- yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought it was kind of interesting also how you're saying that different genres of music can actually change your brain chemistry in different ways. Like techno could potentially boost your immune system versus like meditative music would release stress. I guess maybe that part of it seems obvious, but yeah. Yeah, so the caveat here is that what one person calls meditative music is different from what another might call it. Yeah. We... We did a study where we asked hundreds of people to indicate the music they would use to get up out of bed in the morning when they were late and and really needed a boost, and then what music they'd use right before bed to relax them and help them sleep. And, you know, you got the typical things like, you know, first thing in the morning, James Brown, or relax and get to sleep, Enya. But every once in a while, somebody would say, well, the music I relaxed and get to sleep to is ACDC. And then you'd look at what they wake up with and it'd be like, you know, Swedish speed metal. And so <laughs> in comparison, ACDC was mellow. <laughs> huh. But yes, there are, there are these chemical reactions that we have, our hormones. Um, what, music that we find soothing can release prolactin and serotonin, which prolactin is a tranquilizing hormone. Serotonin modulates mood. Exciting music, you know, whatever that means to you can release adrenaline. And in one study, a couple of studies we looked at, not that we did ourselves, but that we wrote about, techno music helped to increase the immune system, immunoglobulin A in particular, uh, which is helpful in fighting off mucosal infections. Hmm. But, you know, Uh, these are not comprehensive studies. I don't think we know whether other musics would also do the same thing. Sure. What have you been working on lately, I guess, music-wise? Have you been doing some songwriting at all? I have. In fact, I, I wrote a song just a few days ago. Uh, I heard that a friend of mine... Well, I, I won't tell you anything. I'll just... I'll play the song. Okay, great. Let the song speak for itself. This is a debut, so I haven't played it for anybody. Oh, This is awesome. (laughs) I got the news today You're no longer here So many things I wanted you to hear You to hear Now they're lost 
dying seem to need no one What's left inside is just a memory That was beautiful. Thank you. Is that for a song for someone in particular? I had this um, childhood friend that I, I th- have thought about a lot uh, over the years because I grew up in a very small town uh, in a small school where everybody knew each other. There was a cohort of maybe 50 kids, and we knew each other from age 7 to uh, 15, and you know we were all were on this in the same classes, and we played recess together, and there was this one kid named Jeff Forrestal, and um, I moved away when I was 15 and hadn't seen him since then, and then discovered that he lived in near me uh, about three or four years ago. We got in touch in Facebook, and um, you know, we, we traded a couple of emails and talked about getting together, and we never did. I, I never... I never could picture how that would actually work, having not seen somebody in in 40 years. You know, what would we talk about and would it be awkward? And I, I wanted to get in touch with him, but never found the time. And then a few days ago, I read that he died. Hmm. And I felt really sad that I hadn't reached out and um, learned more about the life that he had. He'd become one of the best construction framers in the area for building houses. Everybody said he was one of the best framers around, which is a specialty in in carpentry. And he had kids and uh, maybe even grandkids. And so um, the the song was was for him. I got the news today, you're no longer here. Uh, I'm Hmm. calling the song The Hole Inside My Head. Hmm. That's really nice melody. And thanks for sharing that. And and it's interesting, I've gotten to the point, as, as I imagine you and many of your guests have gotten, where I feel like I don't have to follow the rules of songwriting anymore, in, in meaning that, that, you know, I can do what sounds right. I trust myself to do what sounds right. So if you look at the chords, um, it's in E, but it never, there's no B, it never hits the, the five chord. And yet oh. I think, it, you know, you still get resolution. You don't feel as though there's a chord missing or something like that. And it modulates at some point into, um, it, it kind of modulates into G in the subchorus, And then the chorus is actually in minor, which you're not supposed to do, you know. It's a C-sharp minor to a G-sharp minor, and then it brings you back to the four chord of E, which is A. So, I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't, it's not what you would do if you were plotting it. But um, I followed my ears. Yeah. Well, I feel like maybe if, if there was a B in there, like the five chord, it would it wouldn't feel as it wouldn't have the same feeling of like peacefulness and I don't know. It's not like a static sounding song either, though. So yeah, yeah. 
The other rule I broke is that I, I rhymed a word with itself, sort of. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, I used a homonym, but uh, the first line is, I got the news today, you're no longer here. And the next line is, so many things I wanted you to hear. And oh. it was, I didn't do this out of laziness. I mean, I, I played around. There are sure a, a lot of rhymes for that. Dear, clear, near. But that's what I wanted to say. And um, I, there's a Joni Mitchell song where she rhymes a word with itself. And, you know, there, there are people who do it. I'm not comparing myself to Joni Mitchell, but it, it, it's, it's what I wanted to say and it doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much do you think about the vowel choices you're using when you're coming up with lyrics? Oh, I'm or like so the, glad you asked it... that. I'm, I'm so glad you asked that. To me, that's everything. Uh, for, for the songs I've written, in almost every case, I know what the vowels need to sound like. I don't always have the words, but I know that there are certain sounds I want. I tend not to like hard R's, so I wouldn't end a line with the word her, uh, even though there are hmm. plenty of rhymes for that. Um, Just a s- strange mouth shape and sound, or yeah, and it doesn't feel good. And I, it's mainly the sound. I don't like. I don't mind having a hard R in the middle of a line, but I don't like having it emphasized by being the rhyme at the end of a line. I tend to like open vowel sounds at the ends of lines, E's and I's and O's. And to me, that's everything. And I'll work as hard as I can to get the words to fit that. What about uh, you and the other people you've had on? What do they say about that? Uh, yeah, I think, I guess from personal experience, say, when I do demos and when I've heard other people's demos where they kind of know the, they might not know the lyrics, the words they want, but they know the vowel sounds they want. Yeah. And it, it almost like when I'm writing a song and then I come up with the words later, it almost feels, it sounds like I'm not rhyming things right. Even if I have the same rhyme, but if I had uh, a vowel in mind from the beginning, it doesn't feel right anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I've, I've, for the sake of having a story that made sense or a lyric that was poetic or whatever, I've changed vowels and I've, I've never been happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting hearing or reading in your, your book about your talk with Sting about how he does that with the audience too to try to get people to yes. join in with the EO. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's, that, he's all about the vowels, and he's all about that bass. Yeah. I, I went to um, an amateur songwriter's night, because I love hearing what people write, uh, especially people who are just starting out. And um, we went in a circle, and um, it was some really interesting stuff, and then I played a, a new song of mine, and somebody didn't like the vowel in it and said that I should change it. Uh, they didn't like it. It's not that they didn't like the sound of the vowel, but they they thought that it didn't that particular word didn't fit the story proper, and so I should change the word, which meant changing the vowel. And I tried it, and I lived with it for a couple of weeks, and I just didn't like it. And I I understood that the change of the word, I guess, made it more coherent as a, as a storyline. But as you say, I was fixed on this other vowel. And so I, um, <laughs> I'm reluctant to, to say this because it's going to sound like I'm name dropping. But this is just sort of what my, my life is like. And I'm so grateful for it. I, I, I didn't know what to do. So I texted Stephen Stills, who knows <laughs> the song and likes the song and had never objected to it before. And I said, oh, you know, a few people said that I should change this word to that. And he texted back and he said, well, it doesn't seem like it would sing as well if you did that. And I said, no, but, you know, it, it, makes, the, it makes the poetry or the words better. He says, you got to write what sings the best. And I thought this, yeah, that's right. This is, he's, he's not just a songwriter, he's a singer. And he's mindful of that. I guess I don't think of myself as a singer. I think of myself as a songwriter who sings in order to get his songs out, right? So... 
But here's a real singer telling me you got to write what's going to sing well. And so it, it emboldened me to keep things the way they were. Hmm. So having worked with all these awesome songwriters, uh, is there one or two pieces of advice that really sticks with you when you're when you're working on songs, or something that comes back to you? Well, that often? that so this this yeah. fairly recent advice from Stephen um, is is helpful. Work with what what sings well. Remember that songs are to be sung, and certainly Shakespeare was working with what speaks well and what comes out of the mouth, not just the meaning. Paul Simon told me that his favorite, one of his favorite songwriters is Chuck Berry. And I was surprised because Paul's lyrics are so literary and so complex. And, uh, you know, Chuck's are kind of like high school, you know, driving around in my automobile kind of songs. But Paul said that don't discount Chuck. The things about his songs is they just roll off the tongue. The lyrics just feel good in the mouth, and that's why people are singing them 60 years later. And so I've been thinking about that for a long time, and I've been taking Joni's advice, which comes also to me from Rodney Crowell, the same advice, although articulated differently. Rodney says about my books that he could tell that I fussed over them because they don't read like they're fussed over. Right? They, they sort of read uh, as though I'm just telling a story. We're just two people sitting on the porch. And the truth is, each of the books went through f- 50 drafts to get, get that kind of spontaneous sound to them. And Rodney, who I think is one of the, just one of the greatest songwriters of our generation, you know, Rodney says, you've got to fuss over your songs more. Don't take anything for granted. And so I've been doing that, as I said, with, when we first started talking I'm pulling up songs from 20 and 30 years ago and fussing over them so that they don't sound fussed over or so that they don't sound like they were just sort of grabbed but not really crafted at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, especially with my composing classically, sometimes the first draft I do, I'll go off in this weird tangent that at the time when I'm working on it in slowed down time, it seems like a good idea, but it often takes stepping away from it for a day and then yeah. coming back. Yeah. And when you listen, you instantly think like, oh, there's the rough spot that really didn't do anything for me when I listened back. Yeah. And then you kind of smooth it over. I think um, also I've learned so much from so many songwriters um, Victor Wooten uh, says, "Don't overthink it. You know, feel it, and be joyful about it. And don't worry about the little things. Don't sweat the mistakes and the you know and the performance of it." And Feist um, talks about the movement that the song might want to engender in a listener. Is it going to make them sway back and forth? Is there something that's going to make them want to move? Hmm. Yeah. Thinking about like what you've said in interviews about the like making the music playing automatic. Like piano players say they're the music's in their fingers, that kind of thing. But yeah, it's a little bit harder to figure out how songwriting can be automatic. Well, um, unfortunately sure it is, right? A lot of a lot of songwriters get into because they're players, they get into ruts, they get into habits, their fingers do the same things over and over again. And they keep writing what their fingers want to do and and not what their ear wants to hear. Yeah, that's true. So, I, I one of the ways to get out of that rut, I've found is to learn new pieces of music that I wouldn't otherwise learn. Uh, to play things that I wouldn't otherwise play. So I've been learning to play some classical guitar and some Chet Atkins stuff and some Alex DeGrassi. Mm. I mean, just a bunch of stuff that's outside my wheelhouse. And um, the song that I played you a moment ago, I should say, was uh, very heavily inspired by uh, an unlikely source. Do you know the TV show Nashville? Uh, I haven't watched it, no, but... Um, it's it's a really interesting show, and uh, it's about the music business. It's a, a series, dramatic series on ABC television. 
and I'm loving it. And there's some really great music in it. T-Bone Burnett produced the music in the first season. Hmm. Elvis Costello wrote some of the tunes. And there was a song in one of the episodes by a character named Gunner, who's played by a very talented actor and musician named Sam Palladio. And Sam did this falsetto thing in the song. And, you know, it reminded me of the Chris Isaac song, uh, Oh, I don't want to fall in love. Yeah, I'm, I'm out of key, but... Uh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sing that song. I play that uh, when often live. And, um, you know, there's a lot of singers who do that. But I thought, oh, I haven't, I haven't done that in a song. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start... The next song I write, I'm going to start in a note that's out of my range, that's too high, and see where it goes. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a surprise when you started, uh, but I really liked that, starting from that spot. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned the Chet Atkins-style guitar, and I, I was listening to Basically's, or I don't know how you pronounce that, your guitar piece that you have on your website. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bezekla. It's a city in Belgium. Okay. But sure, you can call it basically. Yeah, that was that was me trying to play around with that muted palm finger-picking style. tradition on the show i ask all my guests if they want to come up with a short intro theme for the their podcast episode oh um as an intro to composer quest Mm -hmm. you want me to compose on the spot and on the spot uh guitar riff Um, of some sort or yeah I'm just like you or like any other writer. I think I just sort of sit around and doodle and noodle and wait till something comes. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's not really a song, but it's, it's something. Yeah. Cool. We were talking about borrowing other styles. I learned, I learned this thing that Paul McCartney does. It took me a long time to learn it, but he has this, and I don't, I don't know what, what it's called technically, but He'll pluck and then strum. And he does it like this. Pluck, strum. Or... And it took me a while to learn it. I just, coordination-wise... Uh, but then once I learned it, I wrote like four songs with it. And, um, I, you know, like with the Chet Atkins thing, trying to write a couple of songs that way. Um, I'll, I'll play you one. This is, um, sure. this is a song that um, I 
I alluded to earlier because I wrote it and thought I was done and then came up with a new part and changed some of the lyrics. It's called Heather. you had the melody doubling in the guitar too yeah thank you um you know what really influenced this was uh, a songwriter named tom brasso from north dakota do you know him no just a wonderful unique new uh, fresh songwriter he i've discovered him when he opened for the punch brothers on a tour two or three years ago uh you know chris thiele's band and um, he does a lot of this. Um... You know, this kind of bass motion, um, sometimes chromatic. And um, I really liked the sound of that. And um, this is the song I mentioned earlier, where I played it for some people. It's uh, Heather is my girl. She is my world. So we're in the third person. I'm describing someone else, like like to you. And then suddenly it's a, I thank God for you. Hmm. And so nobody ever complained about it except some of these songwriters that I had played it for in the round table. Hmm. And a few of them said, you know, that's, that's not grammatically right. 
I mean, you're in the third person, suddenly you're in the second person. What, did she just walk in the room? And <laughs> this is the one where Still says, you got to go with what sings best. And he liked, you know, he, he knows the song. He likes it the way it is. And um, I thought, yeah, that's, I, I like it that way too. Uh, I, I struggled with trying to fix it and I couldn't come up with anything I liked better. Um, so I think getting advice from other songwriters is very helpful. And in many cases, in almost every case, a songwriter has come in and said something that made the song much better than what I had. But every once in a while, you know, you go with what you had. The other interesting mm-hmm. thing for me about this song is that it breaks so many rules. Again, like, like the other one, um, we're in, I, I'm capered up at five, so I'm fingering a D. And there's no, there's no A. It never hits the five. Um, and it does hit the four. But only after this kind of weird... Uh, two chord with a ninth in it. <laughs> so there's this two minor nine. After you have the whole... And, you know, if you write out those, what they are with the bass line changing, those are really weird chords. They're not Ds. This is like a D. A D over E, so it's now some kind of a, a, a D7, but the seven's in the bass, not in the... I mean, it's you know, it's weird. Uh, I'm sorry, it's a nine. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a D nine with the nine in the bass. Anyway, when you're done with all that, it goes to this two minor nine. And if you didn't have the ninth in there, it doesn't have any motion or tension or any way to resolve. I mean, I wasn't thinking about all this when I wrote it. I only noticed it after, like months after. I went, wow, that's weird. And then it goes to a C, which is the flat seven, if you were still in D. And then G. So it, you know, it's just, it was, it was just following my ear. And uh, I'm, hmm. that's how it happened. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of was having the urge to uh, go back and relearn theory because a lot of it has either gone out of my head or it's just like kind of internalized, but I don't think about it. And I was kind of thinking like, it seems like once you can get the basic idea of chords and once you know, like, for example, that E9 created some sort of tension and then you can figure out where it's going to resolve to like it kind of feels like that's the key to unlocking a lot of different cool harmony things you can do once you kind of figure out those small tensions within chords and things like that yeah this is a this is the thing you learn from james listening to james taylor is that it's all about the tension and release and the motions and the suspensions and the you know that kind of thing, or um, but um, you know, I I don't typically write while thinking about theory. I, I look after and I go, well, isn't that interesting? Occasionally, I'll be stuck and I'll say, well, okay, what are the chords I could play from here? But that usually gets me into trouble because then I'm doing something that I've heard before. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always curious to ask people, uh, what do you think makes a good melody? Um, It has to be partly predictable and partly unpredictable. And that's all I know. (laughs) There has to be some surprise in it. Because if it's just the scale or, you know, something that you know, then, I mean... Here, if I were to write a melody, I might start out with a motif. I mean, I, I think when you've been writing for a while, you do it on instinct. But if you, if you had an assignment and you had to speed it up and you're trying to use your knowledge of music and you're going to sit down and do it deliberately, you might start with a motif. So maybe the motif would be da-da-da-da, do-re-mi-do. And, you know, okay, that's not the best motif in the world, but it's a start. And now I want to add to my melody 
So what am I going to do? Well, maybe I'll go da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. So I've got your attention now because I've moved something a little bit. I've changed it a little bit, but I've kept something the same. But if I go da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, now I've lost you because it just sounds like an exercise. But I can fix it by changing just one note. Ba-da-da-da, ba-da-da-da, ba-da-da, boom. Now I've grabbed your attention and it feels like it wants to resolve somewhere. So that's better than the previous one. And I, I think that the element of surprise is part of what makes a good melody. Yeah. I think you had the phrase narrative momentum. Yes. Um, yeah. It's kind of something that good composers have. Yeah, and for sure. Could you kind of describe what that is? Well, in, in literature, narrative momentum is the thing that keeps you wanting to turn the pages in a book. In music, I don't know what you would call it, but it, I, it's narrative momentum in music. You want the narration of the music to continue, and I don't mean narrowly the, the lyric narration. I mean you want the thing to keep going, and, and that feeling that you have of being lost in the groove. And I think you get that from the right combination of lyrics and harmony and melody and rhythm and you want to hear what comes next. And if your song doesn't have that, that feeling of um, you wanting to know what comes next, then I would say the song has is, is, is failed you. You can try a little experiment. You know, stop a song at any random point. And if, you don't, if, if it doesn't make you feel on edge, then it doesn't have the narrative momentum because you shouldn't be able to stop it just anywhere. Hmm. That sounds like a great test. Well, Dan, I don't want to keep you too long here. I'm sure you have a lot of stuff to do. Well, thank you for having uh, me on the show, Charlie. Oh, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk and share your songs. Anytime I can be on the same show that Jonathan Runman's been on, I'm happy. Yeah, yeah, that was a really cool coincidence. Um, Jonathan's right here in the Twin Cities, and we talked about being on each other's podcasts, so... And uh, maybe I'll play the song that he sung of yours. At oh the yeah, end of he the did show. a version of my song. Now that you were gone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have that as the closing song nice. for this episode. All right. Well, thanks, Dan. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Daniel Levitin. To check out his books, research, and songs, go to daniellevitin.com spelled l-e-v-i-t-i-n if you want to get in touch with me email me charlie at composerquest.com or find composer quest on facebook or twitter you might have noticed that i forgot to ask dan a question to keep our question chain going but luckily he was a good sport about it and he emailed an answer and a question so last week's guest crystal grooms mangano asked how often do you revisit your music from the past and add to it here's dan's answer I revisit my music from the past all the time, and I'm always thinking about ways to add to it or revise it. I think as I get farther away from a song, or any piece of writing, new perspectives occur to me. And here's Dan's question for the next guest. Name a song written by someone else that you wish you had written. It needs to be a song that's more or less within your wheelhouse, that is something that, at least stylistically, you might have been capable of writing. Thanks again to Dan for coming on the show. Now, as promised, here's his song, Now That You Are Gone, performed by his friend Jonathan Runman, who is my guest in episode 131. If I only had an hour left to live 
Eternal day. 